Hey folks, Stephen Lacey here. I'm happy this week to present a free episode of our premium podcast, The Interchange. In this episode, we're getting deep on rate design, one of the most important issues in the distributed energy transition. So if you like what you hear, make sure to become a square. For only $249 a year, you'll get access to a ton of extra long-form print content, this podcast, a yearly industry survey, plus live streams to all our events. And we offer enterprise accounts too, which is a pretty popular option. So if you want to share market intelligence with your employees and make them better employees, consider an enterprise account. We also offer a $200 discount to all GTM events. Coming up next week, in fact, in San Diego, we're doing a live interchange at our Solar Market Insight Conference. So if you were a member, you'd get a discount or access to the live stream. You can find out more at greentechmedia.com squared or email us at squared at greentechmedia.com. And before we start the show, I want to mention our sponsor this week, Mission Solar. Mission Solar is a cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. The company is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. Its manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers directly contributing to the burgeoning clean energy economy. And that's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. You can find out more about Mission's cells and modules at missionsolar.com. That's missionsolar.com. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation on the changing business of energy and clean tech from GTM Squared. I'm Stephen Lacey, joined as always by my co-host Shale Khan, our senior VP of GTM Research, who joins us from his corner office in Boston. Hey Shale, how are you? Good. Hey Stephen. We have two guests with us this week here to debate the future of electric rate design. We are at the beginning of one of the greatest economic and consumer behavior experiments ever seen in the energy sector, arguably in any sector. How do we refine pricing in order to rapidly transition our aging centralized grid to a clean decentralized one? And can we do it so that we limit the economic losers, pay for the fixed costs of operating the grid, and make everyone whole? It's a complicated question because the range of actual rate design options, things like decoupling, minimum bills, demand charges, fixed charges, and time of use, offer so many varying benefits and drawbacks. Everyone agrees we're moving to a more distributed grid, but there's a lot of disagreement about how to pay for it. So that's what we're tackling today. Our two guests have been thinking a lot about this issue, and their opinions and analysis are featured in a recent report from the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. The report is called Recovery of Utility Fixed Costs, Utility, Consumer, Environmental, and Economist Perspectives, and we're going to hear those different perspectives. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Lisa Wood, the executive director of the Edison Institute for Electric Innovation. She is a leading thinker on utility adoption of new technologies. Lisa, welcome. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. And in San Francisco is Ralph Cavana, a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he acts as the co-director of the organization's energy program. Ralph, welcome. Glad to be here. Okay. I'm going to turn it over to Shale really quickly because this is a subject that he and his team have thought a lot about, and we're no strangers to rate design on this podcast. We've gotten wonky before. If you had asked me to do a show about rate design, you know, maybe a decade ago, I might have rolled my eyes because it was 
largely theoretical, right? I mean, in terms of the context that we're talking about this in now. We're now in the throes of a real transition and figuring out how to support distributed energy while paying for the grid. This is a real-world conundrum. It's happening today, and it's pretty controversial. So, Shale, where does rate design and paying for fixed costs rank in terms of importance for you when you consider all the, the issues that you're thinking about in your team? I mean, it's it's right up there. It's maybe number one or number two, because, you know, most of the things that we talk about at GTM and certainly at GTM Research, a lot of them have to do with distributed energy resources, right? Like that's a, that's a phrase that we throw around constantly. And every single distributed energy resource, the economics of it is dictated almost entirely by rate structures. You know, whether you have a fully volumetric rate, a partially volumetric rate, if there's a demand charge, if you have some form of net metering or a different form, like all of those things are basically what determine how a customer can yield value from anything that is installed at the customer premises. And so rate design underlies the economics of almost everything that we talk about. And I agree with you. I think that like, you know, a decade ago, there were a lot of people who were who were thinking hard about rate design a decade ago, but it didn't carry the same importance in terms of this transition that it does now. And so we and many others have been spending the past five or six years like trying to make rate design sexy again. And I think it, you know, by, by no fault of our own, it's just sort of happened independently. So now what you have is lots of uh, regulatory venues and some legislative venues in which rate design is being debated, particularly for residential customers, but in some cases for commercial customers as well. And all these questions are being raised about like, what is the right way to charge for electricity? And in particular, I think the thorniest question within that that applies across all these venues is how do you pay for the fixed costs on the distribution grid? So I think that's where we want to focus today is like, we, we can probably all agree that there, there is some degree of fixed costs. How do those get paid for? What is the right way to charge customers for those? Indeed. So let's get some more context from our guests who come at the issue from different perspectives, but also agree on quite a bit. And I think it'll be helpful to hear how they contextualize this. And then we can go into some of the specifics of different rate designs. So firstly, Lisa, over to you. The Edison Institute's members represent around 70% of the electric power industry. And as I mentioned, you're also a leading voice for the industry on progressive change. So you're kind of straddling two worlds. Um, How does that influence the way you view paying for utility infrastructure, traditional utility infrastructure, while also supporting new tech on the grid? Um, Well, I mean, first, I'd like to say, I think the fundamental issue is, how do we pay for the grid uh, in the midst of all this change? So I know that's what the topic's about. And I, I think it's a super important topic. And I would just say getting pricing right is is absolutely essential. So to begin with, at, we are seeing a major transition in the power sector. As you stated earlier, we're seeing a lot more distributed generation, a lot more distributed resources come into the grid. And we're investing a lot in the grid to, in order to enable and integrate those resources. So paying for the grid and being able to make those investments is absolutely critical to get to where we want to be in the 21st century with, with the power grid. So um, I do think that the issue of paying for the distribution system is the issue that we're talking about on this uh, podcast today. And how do we do that? And there's lots of different ways to do that. I think we'll get into some of those as we sort of 
as we move forward in this conversation today. Indeed. And, and Ralph, over to you. So NRDC is a leading environmental group and an advocate for rapid renewable energy development. How do you balance the need to pay for existing infrastructure, the distribution system, with your hope that we accelerate distributed energy as quickly as possible? Right. I, I don't think we have to balance them. I think they're entirely consistent. Uh, the uh, NRDC and EEI two years ago took a hard look at this issue and found out that we were in violent agreement on one thing, which is that a clean energy transition will go much faster and better if the hometown distribution companies are engaged partners, if they are seen as critical participants and not as obstructions uh, and not as, a, uh, as an automatic uh, veto. And what I would it was heartening to me, and I, I think, therefore, I want to begin this conversation on a positive note, that there, there was no resistance to that proposition. And as I continue an engagement of now 37 years duration with the people who run the distribution systems, I don't find them pushing back on the clean energy transition, on distributed resources, on energy efficiency, uh, a term that I hope surfaces repeatedly in this conversation. I find them looking for a way to make sure that those interests are all aligned. And there is absolutely no reason why, we, why the, uh, a robust and thriving system of innovating grids can't coexist with a host of entrepreneurs outside the utility sector who are looking to provide better service at lower cost. So, Lisa, are, are there more agreements here than disagreements? Because when you actually look at how this conversation is playing out, um, you know, within utility rate cases and within state policy, the disagreements tend to rise above the agreements. And and what I'm hearing Ralph say is that you guys are you're starting from a you know a similar place. Well, we did uh, we do have this agreement from 2014 EEI and NRDC a joint statement um, that we for state regulators. And one of the things we say in that agreement is recovering fixed costs of the grid is becoming more challenging. We all recognize that. But we also realize that we need to balance the desire to promote innovation and also enable recovery of investments in the grid. And we have to do it in a way that makes sense for everybody. So I, I do think we, we have a lot of common ground in terms of a starting point. As you know, with all of these things, the devil's in the details. Every state has its own approach. Every state and utility have their own approach in terms of solving it, so, some of these problems. And so that's, I think, what we're seeing across the country. We're seeing the devils in the details. And, and we'll get to some disagreements there, I know, in a moment. But one other area of agreement that's exemplified in the statement is that the, the, the distributed generation advances, the innovations we'll be talking about on this program, are not in any sense fundamental disruptions of the grid. They are enhancements of it. They add value to it. And in the final analysis, there is no reason why the entity that's charged with maintaining and operating the grid can't find abundant common cause with the whole host of people who are working on ways to upgrade and improve it. These are not grid displacements. We are not about to island the country into a bunch of self-sufficient households. The grid will remain an enormously important part of the clean energy transition, and all of the different stakeholders that are part of it need to find ways to work more effectively together if we want to speed this up, and we sure do. Yeah, I want to jump in here. I, 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 mean, I agree with what Ralph is saying. When we as an industry look at grid modernization or our investment in a smarter energy infrastructure, a fundamental reason why we are investing in the distribution system in particular 
is because it is essential for integrating distributed energy resources. It's essential for other things as well, but those investments that we're seeing today, this year, $32 billion in the distribution system, that number is growing each year because we're changing our grid. And in order to modernize the grid to do, to basically accommodate this distributed energy future, we have to invest in the distribution system. You guys are, so, you guys are sort of disagreeing by agreeing here. I just want to say, like, you're, you're agreeing, I think, that... Uh, you know, this transition toward a more decentralized grid and a lot of the new resources that are that are coming online, they have some benefits. But what I hear you saying, Ralph, is that these new resources provide a net benefit to the grid. And Lisa, I hear you saying we need to spend a, a, a fairly significant amount of money, even in the context of what normally gets spent on the distribution grid, in order to manage and enable these resources to continue proliferating. So those two things aren't necessarily in direct opposition, but I think that's sort of at the core of a lot of these conversations around the fixed costs on the grid, which is like, are the fixed costs of the distribution grid inherently fixed and do they need to be recovered or how should they be recovered through rates? Um, and does adding more distributed energy resources increase those fixed costs or decrease them? And, this, and a, I think a crucial part of the answer to that question lies in whether we can build effective partnerships between the grid owners and managers and the, the people who are deploying the distributed resources. Because the distributed resources will have more grid enhancement value if they're strategically sited. And one of the th things that state regulators are working hard to do now is to figure out ways to get the incentives in place that will lead to that strategic siting and that will let the emerging distributed technologies work more effectively with the grid operators. When you guys say we're moving to decentralized grids, I'm not sure I, I don't completely agree with that in the sense that I think we're going to see real value uh, and continuing value in big centralized grids that can integrate across distribution systems. And that within the distribution systems, having a good orchestra conductor as we move into a world of cleaner and smaller scale generation is going to be tremendously important. So I and I think many other advocates of small scale cleaner resources want that orchestra conductor, that grid manager, uh, to be in a position to work effectively with all of the orchestra, all, all, all of the instruments. The or, the, now, the, the orchestra conductor doesn't have to own the instruments. This is not a, a, an appeal for continued entrenched monopoly but it's an appeal for good coordination. We will get the greatest grid value, we will minimize costs, we will maximize reliability if we can find ways to do that. And that's why I don't view Lisa and her constituents here as adversaries of a clean energy transition, but as critical partners. But Shell does bring up a good point here, and this is something that we find time and time again um, when advocates and utilities come together on this issue and talk to regulators about how to value DERs, and that is, the solar industry or, you know, advocates typically come with some value of solar or value of DER study and show that there's a net benefit to the distribution grid. And the utilities tip come with another study that says that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of cost shifting going on. And so although you're talking the same language in a way here, and there is a lot of agreement, when it comes down to it, like there's still a lot of disagreement. And, and I don't think we can avoid that. Um, you know, you do want to be partners in this, but the different parties are often coming with different sources of data, and it can be confusing for onlookers to, to, to look at those conflicting reports and know what to think about, you know, how important or how costly DERs are to the distribution grid. Lisa, do you want to comment yeah, let's on that? Go, yeah, I do want to comment on that. Let's go back to the original study 
and that was the C, the E3 study for California, which showed a cost shift of $1.1 billion per year in 2020 under the current NEM policies when that report came out. That report really started this debate of how big is that cost shift. So $1.1 billion cost shift is what they estimated from basically a cost shift from rooftop solar to non-rooftop solar customers if they didn't change their policies. So the, since then, we've seen other studies. Nevada is also an example of actually a state that's now done several studies. So you're right, there is a debate about this. And there's, and I think, again, um, do DERs bring a net benefit to the grid? I think one of the things that Ralph just said is it if, if they're strategically located, they have one value. If they're not strategically located, they have another value. Um, so we are seeing, obviously, advocates, in particular solar advocates, pushing their agenda to basically come up with numbers that show net benefits. But I think we've seen this play out in, in Nevada, where the first study that was done in Nevada in 2014 showed, actually, a net benefit. Um, very soon after that study was published, the same study in basically showed a net cost. And the reason was because the assumption that they used was out of date almost immediately when the study was published. That was done a couple years ago. Nevada has since then updated its study and shown that uh, you know th there is a, a cost shift from rooftop solar customers to non-rooftop solar customers as, um, as a result of the NEM policies. The policy, the regulatory policy that's in place is there, is it right for where we are today? I think we would say that a couple years ago, or you know, when NEM was put in place, it was in the 1980s actually, and it was sort of just put out there as a simple way to, to deal with uh, distributed generation. It wasn't thought through. Now we, ha we are thinking it through, and this is the debate that we're seeing. We're thinking it through, obviously, advocates on one side are gonna come up with a different answer. Um, I, I, I fully believe that we are, the fundamental problem is that all customers need to pay for the grid. And I think we would all agree that we want this grid because it's super important to all the things that we're trying to do in this country. So before we go too far down this road, I mean, I think, I think it's easy to fall into this habit of like going back and forth with the NEM and value of solar studies, those studies that you mentioned, Lisa, they exist. There are also studies on the other side in places like Maine. There have been, you know, studies on both sides of the equation in the same state, like in Arizona. The, the point of today's conversation, I think, is not to evaluate the value of solar or even really to attack NEM. Those are both worthy topics that we should take on at another time. But our question is, um, how should you structure it, the electricity bills such that customers are paying their fair share for the fixed costs of the distribution grid? Um, and so I think just to get into that, I, I guess I want to start with just making sure that we do have agreement on all sides that like there's some portion of the cost that a customer should incur that is actually fixed, meaning that the customer behavior cannot affect that. I'm thinking of things like metering and billing costs. Can we all agree that like there there is some fixed cost? Oh, sure. Route? And there are very significant costs also that have already been incurred and need right. to be recovered. Right. Okay. So we all agree that there are fixed costs. And so now then the question is, how do you charge customers for those, right? What is the mechanism to actually charge them? Um, so I think that the, let's just start at the top of the list, 
uh, with what has historically been the primary mechanism to recover those fixed costs, which is fixed charges, which is sort of an an obvious answer, right? If if you know you calculate that the average customer incurs ten dollars a month or so in uh, fixed costs, then they should pay ten dollars a month in fixed charges on their bill. That those are charges that they can't influence. They can't do energy efficiency and reduce those. They can't do solar and reduce those. They can't change their load profile and reduce those. That's just always on their bill every month. And that's been a component of residential electricity bills for a long time. The big debate I think now is, um, first of all, there are lots of proposals from utilities to increase fixed charges. And there's some debate about whether that makes sense. And second, there are some places where um, alternatives are being proposed to fixed charges that we'll talk about in just a minute. But let's just talk about fixed charges for a second first. Ralph, your position in this paper is sort of uh, entirely opposed to fixed charges as a solution to fixed costs on the grid. Can you explain why? Well, so first, a slight historical correction. Um, the, the, the costs that I think Lisa would reasonably view as fixed for the typical customer are way above $10 a month. And historically, most of those costs have been recovered through volumetric rates. Uh, the reason we like that is that we want people to be rewarded for saving energy. Uh, and we want to maintain incentives for people to uh, install distributed resources. We would like that done in partnership with utilities. But we don't want to alter the fundamental value proposition that's been there since time immemorial. And the utility industry has been a largely fixed cost industry throughout that time. So the question is, do we need punitively higher fixed charges that will reduce customers' rewards for saving energy in order to resolve the problem that Lisa has fairly posed, which is how do you make sure that everybody who is using the grid makes a reasonable contribution to its maintenance and upkeep? We think that problem can be solved without large increases in fixed charges. But we also think, and this may be an even more important point, that the issue of making sure that those costs are recovered, making sure that the distribution platforms can thrive, requires us to break the historic link between the financial health of our distribution companies and the retail kilowatt hour throughput that pumps through that grid. Uh, we think that the utility's ability to recover its fixed costs should be independent of fluctuations in kilowatt hour sales. Sales are dropping. Uh, sale, they're not dropping in absolute terms, but growth in electricity use has been sharply down since 2000. This isn't a new development. And we, this reinforces the point that the modern distribution company isn't in a commodity business anymore. We don't want to reward it for pushing out more kilowatt hours at retail. We want to reward it for being a good partner in a clean energy transition. Now, now I think just for uh, the sake of keeping us on track here, I mean, you're, you were sort of getting at revenue decoupling, right? You're getting at the idea that utilities shouldn't make more money off of selling more kilowatt hours. And to me, that seems like a secondary question right now. Right now, I want to ask, I want to ask, what is the right way to charge customers? And then let's presume that when we figure the right way to charge customers, then on the back end, we'll figure out the way to either make the, the distribution utilities whole or not if we don't want. But, but first, let's just ask what's the right way to charge the customer. But I'm going to jump in here um, in terms of the right way to charge customers, because I think there are, there, the answer is going to vary. But I, I want to go back to the fixed cost issue, because I think it's really important Everybody knows this, and Ralph just said it, the fixed costs that are on the bill today, actually on average, they're $12 a month for an average customer in the U.S., and it obviously doesn't cover the fixed costs associated with 
grid, the grid or grid services. So as, as Ralph stated, a large portion of fixed costs are recovered through the volumetric energy charge today. What does that mean? That means customers don't know what they're buying. So I want as a fundamental sort of a fundamental point to me is that I'm for transparency in pricing. Pricing the services the customers receive from electric companies. They receive grid infrastructure services and energy services. And I want to put that out there because I think we have some sort of obligation to start to educate customers about what they're receiving in terms of a service. Okay, so you both, you, you disagree on fixed charges themselves, but that there's another side of the coin, and that is demand charges. So charging consumers for peak power usage during times of the day so that you're you know, basically charging them for the infrastructure needed to deliver that power during peak times. And this is something that you both agree could be a good option. You're not totally enthusiastic about it, but there is agreement here. So why? I think the agreement is on fundamentally on time varying rates as a a promising concept. Variable demand charges are one flavor of time varying rates. Uh, but the notion that, you, that, that the amount you pay for electricity bears an important relationship to when you use it is one that, yes, we think is reasonable and certainly will help to get at some of the concerns that Lisa is raising. But at least in this, in this report that I'm, I'm looking at, you agree on demand charges, but you don't agree on time varying rates holistically because there's many different types of time of use rates. Um, can you just help me understand the discrepancy there? Lisa, maybe you want to chime in on on like what you consider a good time varying rate and what you consider uh, untenable. Yeah, because I'll just say at the outset, I'm not aware of a, princ- a, a, a disagreement in principle on the value of time varying rates. I think we're, we're, we both view that as promising. Now, Lisa, you go ahead and qualify that as you need yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. Yeah, time time varying. Okay, time of use rates or time varying rates have been around for three or four decades at this point. Are they in widespread use with residential customers? No. What do time-bearing rates do? They basically create an incentive to use energy, um, to, to use energy at different times of the day, to use energy off-peak rather than on-peak, depending on what the, the type of rate is. That's a good thing. I don't think there's any disagreement about that. When it comes to paying for the grid, what are we talking about? There's the issue of energy, and there's the issue of you can call it capacity or the grid. I think that. There's, and again, there's different ways to do this. Some, some states are, are going with time of use rates. I mean, we're seeing that in California where it's gonna become the default rate. Other places are starting to talk about demand charges where customers are charged more explicitly for use of the grid, the capacity, sort of the grid. Um, so that's it. it's different. I mean, it's different in terms of what it's doing. They both provide incentives and these are good things because I mean, coming from say a flat rate structure, moving to any kind of variation in rates, it makes sense. It makes economic sense from an efficiency perspective. So and Lisa, I think we, what I want to press you on is I, I still think we're talking about two elements of a continuum. We talk about demand charges and time varying rates. And, and to drive the point home, my prediction is that within five years, Lisa and I won't be talking about capacity anymore. We'll be talking about flexibility. Uh, we won't be thinking about the importance of a single, quote, peak. We'll be concerned about balancing loads and resources 24-7. And Flexibility value increasingly will need to come into rate structures to reward that. And I think that is one of the great questions we need to address together. And it's an area where I predict there will be a lot of consensus in the end. 
because people are starting to understand the system differently than they did 20 years ago. I agree with you about flexibility value. I mean, I think that's a term we'll be using a lot more. Certainly, how does that manifest in rates in your mind? I mean, do are you saying that like you in a time when there's a, a heavy ramp, when the sun sets and, you know, people come home, the classic sort of belly or I guess the what the, the chest of the duck and the duck curve um, during that time, you have rates ramp up really fast if it's time varying rates and that is sort of flexibility value or do you have something different in mind? Well, I think you just you just stated very effectively the principle underlying the effort. Now, you can't, as a practical matter, have the rates constantly and dynamically changing just because of the resulting, I think, public confusion and the difficulty of administering it. But you want to be moving in that direction where the charges that people are facing bear a much closer relationship to what's actually going on in the system and the actual costs that are being incurred. I want to ask about, you know, you, I think, Lisa, you mentioned um, when we were talking about fixed costs and when we were talking about NEM in particular, I think uh, that, you know, putting a resource in one place in the grid doesn't have the same value as putting it in another place in the grid. Um, And that makes it such that NEM for all customers may not make sense or even just having the same rates for all customers may not make the most sense. I guess one thing we haven't been talking about here is locational rates. Um, And I wonder what you, first of all, what you think about locational rates. And then also, I guess, as it relates to fixed charges, you know, if you're in favor of fixed charges, are you in favor of fixed charges that vary by the customer's location? Or are you in favor of keeping them pretty uniform across customers? Let's, a couple things here. I want to just go to the um, locational issue first. We haven't, it hasn't been talked about that much. New York is definitely talking about this. I think there there have been two papers written in New York that talk about locational ELMPs, right? I mean, locational marginal prices on the distribution system. Um, So that is just starting to be explored. um, And I think that makes sense. It, It makes the distribution system more of a marketplace the way the transmission system is. But we're at the very beginning of that. Um, so, so I want to just put that out there. The second thing is I want to go back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier because I think it's important, and that is when people come home at the end of the day and everybody's using electricity at, say, 5 or 6 p.m., what makes sense? I mean, this is sort of the whole rush hour idea, right? If you don't want people to use power at, or if you don't want people to drive at rush hour, you might charge them a higher rate right, to, to be on the highway. If you don't want people to use electricity at rush hour, which could be 6 p.m., um, especially if there's a lot of distributed resources on the system, um, then you might charge them a higher rate at that time. It doesn't have to vary you know, every hour of the day, but it, it needs to be known that you're trying to incent people to actually get off the system, say, when, let's say, if there's a lot of distributed resources, you have solar coming off the system, you want other people to get off the system so that... When the solar goes down, you don't have this major, major sort of uh, spike in demand. So, I mean, all that's doable with pricing. Absolutely. Right. But so, I mean, you, you know, I think that's the classic sort of time of use rate structure. But but I, I do want to ask again on the fixed charge question. Um, I, I get that we're at the early days here and locational pricing is sort of a new thing. But it strikes me that if what we're talking about at the end of the day is pricing transparency and pricing that is cost reflective, you know, it, to the extent that we want any fixed charges on the bill, one would think they should be customer specific, right? If you're, 
if you're in some distant rural location, your fixed cost as a proportion of the total fixed cost on the, the grid might be a lot higher than somebody else. Well, I don't think we're going to go that, down that road. I mean, I think we, we have an infrastructure, the grid is an infrastructure investment. Um, some of those fixed costs are going to be fixed no matter what. Um, and then some of those fixed costs can, will vary. So I think it's, it's, I don't think we're going to be in a situation in this country where we make a decision, you know, if you live down a long road, we're going to charge you more because of the fixed costs. I mean, we haven't done that. I don't think we're going to go there. I think that's, that's a bit too extreme. But let me suggest a, what I think is a better way to solve the problem that Lisa has identified. Rather than have a fixed charge on every bill, which reduces everybody's reward for saving energy, why not instead adopt a concept called a minimum bill, which says that everyone who's connected to the grid will make at least a minimum contribution to its upkeep for the reasons that Lisa specifies, but that once your consumption goes above a minimum level, you're back on full volumetric pricing again. So the minimum bill is relevant to people who use almost no electricity, maybe because they have big DG systems, maybe because they have vacation homes. But once you go above that threshold, straight volumetric pricing, that minimum bill approach gives you the assurance that everyone who's connected to the grid will be, will be contributing to it. But it does not, for most customers, reduce the reward for saving energy. And Lisa, that seems to solve both problems. I mean, you're having everyone pay for the fixed costs of the grid, but it also incentivizes people to invest in energy efficiency and DERs because they do see an incentive for reducing their usage uh, below a certain amount. So why don't you prefer a minimum bill over, say, just a straight-up fixed charge? For two reasons. First, the, the biggest issue is, is the, will the minimum bill be high enough? So right now, when we lock, look across our systems, the fixed component of the electricity bill is between, say, 40 and 60% of the bill, yet customers are charged $12 a month. A typical bill in the U.S. is $110 a month. If customers are charged $12 a month, they're being charged 10%. They're not being charged 40 or 50%. Okay, so, the, I mean... So it's a negotiation. It's a negotiation, that's right. So, I mean, the question there is, I mean, if a minimum bill at the right amount is basically, you know, it's the same as a fixed charge. Um, and it's all about getting to the right point because, I mean, historically, we've had really low, very low fixed charges. And as you noted earlier, we're seeing a lot of companies go in and ask for increases in their fixed charges today, um, you know, to help, you know, for, to, to pay for the cost of the grid. So, again, minimum bill can work if, it, if, if it's high enough. And I will, just, uh, I will just observe when I say it's a negotiation. The, uh, the question fundamentally for regulators, I think, is what is a reasonable minimum contribution for each residential customer to make uh, to ensure a thriving grid? Uh, and assuming that such a number can be determined, what's the best way to recover it? Uh, and I will uh, compromise my negotiating position to the point of agreeing with Lisa that if I simply offered a $10 minimum bill as an alternative for a $10 fixed charge, a uh, little excitement would be generated from the utility counterparty because they would see no gain to the system. But that I think there is room to have that discussion because I don't think the minimum bill, I think the minimum bill up to a reasonable number, and uh, th th there will be many state forums in which that can be negotiated, will be far better in terms of equity, impact on low-income customers, and impact on incentive to save energy than a much higher fixed charge would be. 
So that's, this is an illustration of why I think that the next step in the whole question of where rate design goes has to be in the forums that the state regulators are affording with direct engagement between the utilities, the consumer advocates, the low-income representatives, uh, and the environmental and DG groups who are all used to working in those forums and who I think have every prospect of coming to consensus and not needing adversarial fixed, uh, sort of, uh, fixed firing positions, uh, which guarantees a lot of discord and delay and doesn't move the ball forward on the issues we all really care about. Can I just ask you each to sort of, as opposed to advocating, predict for a moment, um, and maybe it'll be one and the same, but, you know, if you had to make your best guess, let's just say a decade from now, um, what will the standard, to the extent that there is a standard residential electricity bill be comprised of? So say say there's a $100 monthly bill, um, how many dollars of that will come from from what component in, you know, 2026? Ralph? Well, so first of all, let's recognize reassuringly, as Lisa has pointed out, the average residential bill is about $3 a day. I think actually most people find that a stunning revelation. They think they are paying a lot more for electricity. The real price of electricity hasn't budged in the last quarter century. And the first thing to say about the next decade is I think both of us expect electricity to continue to be affordable and reliable. What I think will happen, and I hope this isn't all wishful thinking, uh, is that we will move more toward time ver- well, a combination of time-varying rates, minimum bills, and revenue decoupling. And the revenue decoupling is critical because if you're going to innovate in rate design, you've got to give the utility reasonable assurance that it will get its authorized revenue requirement. If you don't have revenue decoupling, innovation in rate design introduces all kinds of unpleasant possibilities if people behave differently than you expect. I don't think we want that uncertainty and instability at the present time. So that's why, for me, the revenue decoupling piece is a critical part of any package we end up with. But for me, it's the minimum bills and the time-varying rates that are likeliest to deliver consensus-based solutions going forward, coupled with the revenue decoupling. You're saying uh, that 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 representative residential customer has a minimum bill. Yep. um, And the rest of- Say 20 bucks. Sure. Say 20 bucks out of the My opening offer. Right. (laughs) And that the rest of their bill is comprised entirely of a volumetric rate. A time-varying volumetric rate. Time-varying volumetric rate. Yep. Got it. Okay. Lisa, your turn. Okay. So what I would say is um, I'll go back to uh, the orchestra conductor role. So I see uh, rates where we basically- pay for this, the grid, um, and basically what the role of the grid is, and that's some sort of fixed charge. And then we have, and then in addition to that, in order to pay for energy, we have time-varying rates that basically incent customers to use the grid or to use energy efficiently. There's a lot of convergence here. (laughs) Well, there is a lot of convergence, absolutely. And, And I guess the question is, if two organizations... Uh, like you know, NRDC and the the Edison Institute are are agreeing on this stuff. Then, like, why why are we not seeing more agreement on the ground level? I mean, there are very different visions here. I th- I think you've you've painted some very different paths that the industry could take, but there are a lot of similarities here. And I find myself scratching my head, wondering if you can come together in, as early as 2014 and agree on a basic set of principles. Um, why is it so hard to get everyone else on board? 
Well, the first thing I would say, I think we have made progress. Uh, if you want, for example, illustrations of states in which we, we are seeing a consensus uh, emerging, I cite Berkshire Hathaway Energy in uh, Washington State reached agreement uh, recently in a contract. They started out with a sharply higher fixed cost, fixed charge proposal. Uh, that was uh, rejected by most of the other stakeholders. They came back with a combination of revenue decoupling, an annual uh, upward bump in uh, revenue requirement to allow for grid enhancement, accelerated depreciation of aging coal plants. That package was approved recently by the Washington Commission. In Illinois, you're seeing a very serious, constructive, multi-party effort to get a consensus around what the key elements of a clean energy transition need to be. Uh, and rate design is certainly going to be part of that. Same in New York with the REV process. There's a lot of progress to point to. From my perspective, things are not uh, in the same place as they were in 2014 when Lisa's constituents were lobbying ad campaigns back and forth against my constituents to nobody's edification. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of change and a lot of forward motion in the last couple of years. I also want to point out uh, Colorado and a recent settlement uh, for Excel Energy. Absolutely. So in that, in that situation, Excel Energy was asking for what they called a grid use charge in addition to their fixed charge. Their settlement with the solar community and other stakeholders resulted in basically putting in a pilot demand charge uh, program. So they will be, and also a, a pilot time of use uh, rate program. So they will be doing that over the next couple of years. They do not have full-scale smart meter deployments, so it will be with a small, I think it's about 40 or 50,000 customers. Um, but they will be experimenting with those two rates with their customers, getting a lot of feedback on what from their customers, and then they'll be moving forward from there. But I think it's another example. We wouldn't have been talking about that two years ago. Things have changed a lot. And you should, and I think the other place we should point to is Hawaii, which was, uh, which has made a lot of progress on a constructive combination of a minimum bill approach uh, and uh, some other rate design features that are going to allow that system to continue to serve as our postcard from the future, as they love to call themselves. Well. Uh, I think you've, you know, this is a really messy, messy business, and you've given us a little bit to be hopeful about in terms of finding agreement and forging a path forward on this. But uh, certainly the conflicts will continue, and hopefully this will inform the debate about uh, principles that different sides uh, can agree on. And I really appreciate both of your time. So Lisa Wood is the executive director of the Edison Institute for Electric Innovation. She came to us from Washington, D.C. Lisa, thanks. Thank you. And Ralph Cavana is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He was with us in San Francisco. Ralph, thanks very much. Thank you. And I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is The Interchange, a podcast from GTM Squared. So thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.